You're listening to The Church in the Plan of God, a Sunday school series in the book of Acts, taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to be together today, to study your word together, to learn more about your design, your plan for the church, and then to worship our Savior together and to hear again from your word in the, in the book of James. And God, I pray that as, as we just sit under your word, that we would allow you to teach us that um, my words would fall flat, but your words would be clear. Um, and Lord, that we would be willing to make changes and to be more like what you want the church to be. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So we've been going through this series in the book of Acts for a while now, The Church and the Plan of God. This is lesson nine. And so far, here's what we've looked at. We've seen that the church had, was composed of, was made of, spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus fulfilling the Great Commission. You remember that? That's what the church was supposed to be doing. That's what they were. They prayed corporately as they sought the Lord's will and power together. So prayer was a big part of what the church did. Not only that, the words and the decisions of those in leadership were founded upon the word of God. So the Bible was central. That gospel proclamation focused on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and invited sinners to repent and believe. So they had a message for the world and it focused on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That membership to the church included those who were born again and baptized. Those who received the gospel were baptized and then added to the church. That's that, that how the system worked. Activities in the church included Bible study, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. That they were joyfully living in authentic, unified community for the glory of God. The gospel proclamation was made by obedient believers, possessed with boldness derived from time spent with Jesus. That believers rejoiced in suffering for Jesus and were not deterred by opposition to the gospel. That unity was evidenced by the generous sharing of goods to ensure that the needs of fellow believers were being met. And finally, that believers were excited to live honest, holy lives in the fear of God. We learned that last week. If you remember our story from last week, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, uh, many of you weren't able to be here because we had the grow up Sunday for our kids. But last week, look, last week we looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, that the two of them did something that from outward appearances, was very commendable. Right? They had land, they sold it, and they brought a, a portion of that, a, probably a large portion of that, to lay at the apostles' feet, to give it to the church. The problem was, they had promised all of it. They had promised that they would sell the land and give it. They'd made this pledge, this promise to God and before the church. So when they came and they brought only part of that, man, it wasn't true. They were lying. They were lying. Peter says, you, you didn't just lie to men, you were lying to the Holy Spirit. So Ananias comes in, Peter has this exchange with him, and what happens to Ananias? He drops dead, right? That's, that's severe, that's extreme. That's some immediate church discipline going on, right? <laughs> but that wasn't the church, that was, that was God. And, and, and so they carry his body out, they go bury him, and then Three hours later, the guys get back. Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, she comes in at the same time. They ask her the same question. She says, yes, it was for this much that we sold it for. 
And he says, the, the, the men who just carried out the body of your husband will now carry you out. And she drops dead as well. And, and we think, man, that is, that would probably scare people away. Why, why would you want to be a part of a church where people are coming in, they're just dropping dead? Well, it did say that fear came upon all and upon the church. But, but today we're going to see what some of the fallout from that was. Right? What was the result of God dealing so severely with sin as it entered into the church? So let's look together at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. It says, Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared to join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick unto this out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So we've got this tragic, horrible story of people sinning, being caught, and then, then suffering immediate consequences for their sin. And we expect there to be, and then, you know, the church divided, and then this happened, and it was, people really struggled. But instead, we hear the story of the apostles doing these signs and wonders among the people. That actually, when the world looked in at the church, they, they were afraid, in a sense, right? They, they, they didn't dare to join them. Um, in other words, it wasn't something you just entered into lightly, but they did respect them. They esteemed them highly. And then we find out that, it, that believers are increasingly added to the Lord. So it's not that, it's not that nobody was coming to church because they were scared. That wasn't the idea. The idea was that there was, there was a, a, an understanding that something powerful was happening in this place. And you wouldn't join yourself to it unless you were all in. Unless you were a born again child of God, it, it was not a cultural thing for them to go to church. They weren't going to church because they, they found community there, right? They were coming to church because they believed that Jesus Christ had died, that he was buried and that he rose again and that he did that for their sins. And they were, so them being born again, were now being added to the church, joining. And so we've got this amazing increase of people within the church, um, even, even increase in signs and wonders, it feels like. This, this story always gets me, the idea that um, they would put sick people in the shadow of Peter, and as he passed by, they would be healed. What is that? We don't, we don't see that type of thing happening, even, even in Jesus' ministry, right? And so I guess there's a few questions for us to ask. We're going to move on. We're not going to spend too much time in this part of the story, but a few questions to ask. Should we be expecting these signs and wonders today? Should, should we be expecting today that we can just bring some sick people into the rows and we can, you know, pastor will walk by and they'll be healed. There was a purpose for that. That's good. Okay. Okay, good. So I, I, think, I think that you're right, Sammy. I think that God had a very specific purpose for these signs and wonders. Okay, and they are all called signs and wonders. Not just, not just miracles, not just wonders, but they are meant to be signs. And there were signs to say that what the apostles were sharing, the message that they had, 
was true, that it was from God. And remember the apostles, their doctrine formed the foundation of the church. So the church was birthed, not just from the teachings of Jesus, but from the things that Jesus taught to his apostles that then they taught. So what they were doing, the the, the truth that the apostles were giving, for that to be founded upon what God was saying, not just their own ideas, that was important. And these signs and these wonders confirmed that. So we, we do look at the book of Acts and we say, okay, what part of this is descriptive? This is what happened. And what part of it is prescriptive? This is what should happen today. And I think here's one of the areas where we can look at this and say, I think what was going on here was more descriptive than prescriptive. That we're living here in a transitional time between the Old Testament and now the New Testament church, and this is being founded. And when God does something new, when he brings new revelation, even in the Old Testament, it is often or always followed by signs, wonders, miracles. That's how God confirms that what's happening is from him. And just to reiterate that point, the first time we see the idea of signs and wonders happening is in Acts chapter 2, verse 43. And there it is the apostles doing the signs and the wonders and the miracles. We see Peter healing somebody in Acts 3, verse 11. And so again, it's, it's one of the apostles. In Acts 14, 3, we see signs and wonders and miracles. And this is Paul, the apostle. And again, in Acts 19, 11, signs and wonders, miracles, and it's Paul, the apostle. And we, we don't actually see signs and wonders and miracles being done by the church at large. This is, this is the, the apostles that are known for their signs and wonders. And not only that, as we get into the epistles, which remember the, the, the book of Acts is taking place in the first 30 years of the church. Toward the end of the book of Acts, we see less miraculous activity. But the epistles were written kind of 20, 30, 40, 50 years after um, Jesus' death and resurrection. And during that time, there was less conversation in Paul's letters about signs and wonders and miracles than there was taking place in the early church. In fact, in the book of Philippians, we hear a story about, um, about Epaphras, Epaphroditus, who he was a friend of the Philippian church. He had been sent to Paul. He got very sick and Paul didn't just heal him. And then in Philippians chapter two, verse 27, he says, for indeed he was sick and nigh unto death, almost to death. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And so this is not a picture of him coming in and Paul just being like, poof, you're better. This was a man who was sick and he went to the point of death, but God had mercy and he slowly got better, right? There was no, as far as we can tell, there was no miraculous healing here. And so this was not something that the church experienced on a regular basis. This was something that, that God used to confirm the truth that was being given. Timothy, yeah. Uh, Timothy is another example of that. He said, take some wine for your stomach's sake. Why? Because he had some stomach problems. Well, why didn't Paul just heal him? Well, because that wasn't, that wasn't the norm. Hey, this is special, unique. Okay, so uh, yeah, I think that's, that is definitely the, the next step in this conversation, that the reason that, that we don't require signs and wonders and miracles is because God's word has been confirmed to us. Right? So we have the Bible. And we can look to that and say, this is the word of God. And so we have truth. We don't need new revelation. That's actually one of the dangerous things, I think, that is prevalent in North American Christianity is this idea that I need a new word all the time. 
Like every day I wake up, I want God to give me something. I want, I want a brand new thing. So I'm going to just, I'm just going to pray and then wait until God tells me something. And like, I understand that, that does, it sounds good. It sounds very spiritual, but part of the problem with that is that how do you know that what you were given was from God? Because he has given us his word and that is what we can bank our lives on. It, it is sufficient. It is what we need to become mature believers in Christ. First Timothy 3, 16, 17 says that. And so we, we don't, I'm not saying that God, and listen, I, I do want to make something clear. I'm not saying that God could never tell somebody something. There's been times in my life where I was, I was very clearly convicted to do something, to share the gospel with a particular person. One time I was driving down the road. I felt the conviction so badly that I turned around from where I was going and, and had to drive back to where I was. And I think it was partly because I was supposed to do it while I was there and I just didn't. And so anyways, but there are some times that, that I think God does through his Holy Spirit. He does implant things on us. But I think it's dangerous to think I need something new because what I have is not sufficient. And I think the word of God is sufficient. Yes. Now, there, yes, absolutely. So there's, there's nothing new under the sun. In other words, you're not trying to go to the Bible and find a truth that nobody's ever seen before. But there are, God does speak to us in, in exciting and new ways in our circumstances where I'm going through this trouble that I haven't gone through before. And now I'm in this passage and I never saw that before. And God had that there for me. That's absolutely. And I'm not saying that God could never perform a miracle. I think he does heal people today. But I don't think we expect this to be like a one person with a gift where you touch and then it's just a miraculous healing. I think that when he heals people, it's because the people of God have prayed and, and God decides that he's going to heal that person. We shouldn't expect that to happen all the time. We shouldn't, we shouldn't lose our faith when it doesn't. That's part of the problem with the, the faith, word of faith movement is that you get people who, if God doesn't heal somebody, if God doesn't heal me or my loved one, it's because I don't have faith or because God is broken. And those are both, both bad options, right? And, and so I think that it can be very dangerous for people's faith as they go through trials. It's, it's okay for us to see, like, sometimes God allows us to suffer. Sometimes he takes people, right? There is trials in this life. Our hope is not this life, it's eternity. All right, good, is that, is that enough? Thank you, Sammy. He's, he's here to keep me on track and make sure I'm not missing stuff. I appreciate it. It's good. All right. So let's, let's move on then to um, verses 15, sorry, Acts chapter 5, verse 17 to 42. Now, remember, Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 were in the temple. And they, were, they had healed this lame man at the beautiful gate. And then remember that in Acts chapter 3, 11, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's greatly amazed. So they're at Solomon's porch and that's what, that, that's, this is happening there. So now they're back at Solomon's porch. This is where the church often seemed to have met together. If you were, if you were looking at the temple, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with the temple, but the, the, the entire temple grounds was massive, like many football fields large. And around it, there was this huge wall. And then the first, the first largest area was um, open to the sky, and that was the, gen the court of the Gentiles. And at the edge of the court of the Gentiles, on the east side, the entire east side 
was a, a, a gr- group of columns that had like a roof on top. Actually, there was too high. But um, so there's, there's this, this area where there was just columns all over the place where you could, you could be free from the sun, but you were still kind of in the court of the Gentiles. Does that make sense? And so then after that, you would go through another larger uh, set of walls. You'd be in the, the court of the Israelites and the women, and then you'd get into the, sorry, the, the court of the women, and then it's the Israelites when you're more inside. And then there's the area that just the priests and Levites go, right? And then there's the Holy of Holies. So it's kind of like this ascension of holiness. That's the, the picture of it until you're you know, at the altar where they go once a year to offer the sacrifice. So, so here they're meeting under, if you can imagine just columns all over the place and a roof, a roof above them, there's this massively large area and many people would congregate there because it'd get them out of the sun, right? So that's where a lot of the tables were set up and such. And so here they are. And in, in chapter three, they were there. They healed the lame man at the beautiful gate. And then they went to, Sol- the man ran to Solomon's porch and there he, he gathered a crowd and the crowd then heard the gospel. And then the religious leaders saw what was happening the, the crowd attracted a lot of attention. And so they come out and they arrest Peter and John. They put them in prison. And then they invite Peter and John to give an, a defense in front of the Sanhedrin. And so they do that and they give this beautiful, incredible defense. And afterward, they're, the, the people don't know what to do. The Sanhedrin is, is confused because they know the people love this. They can see the man he's been healed. Everybody has seen this man for 40 years lame at the gate. So it, it, like, what do you do to them? So they, they threaten them. Like that's going to stop them. Like I don't, don't preach or teach in the name of Jesus ever again. That's what they say. And they say, well, do you think we should obey God or men? Okay. So clearly they're not planning to stop. Well, now we're in Solomon's porch and all of these miracles are taking place. And you can imagine that, that for the, the Israelite people, for these Jewish leaders, they think we killed Jesus. We put this movement to death. How is it now growing on our turf? Right? This is, this is our temple. And this is where the Christians are meeting. And this is where they're healing people. And people are, are, are transferring from Judaism in their mind. It's this like leaving Judaism to become Christians. Well, in the mind of the, of the Christians, of the Jews there, they're accepting the Jewish Messiah. This is the most Jewish thing you can possibly do. But that's not how the religious leaders believe that's happening. So, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, because, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles, and they put them in the common prison. So, so they're, they're super angry. That's what that meant, right? They're filled with indignation. So much so that they grab them, the apostles, and they throw them in the prison. Uh, it, it's funny because for the apostles, and you'll see this in, in a few moments, this was, this was exciting for them. This was not a bad deal. Now, like that doesn't, the common prison is a gross place to be. You only get fed if people bring you food, right? You're, you're often chained up. The, the sanitary conditions are horrendous. You're treated much worse than animals are treated today. But they were okay with it because they were suffering for the name of Christ. And I I found it interesting. I was listening to, I think I told you, um, the insanity of God. And when they talked about, they talked to pastors from China 
uh, they talked about how often Chinese pastors were ending up in prison. And there was like a two-year sentence if you were if you were caught as a pastor preaching the gospel. And they said, the prison is our seminary. We know that other pastors are legit if they've spent their two years in prison, right? That's, that's how they know. And so it is crazy for us to think, you know, I'd never want to do that. And for them, it's like, that's just normal. We actually don't really trust a pastor until he's spent some time in prison. And so verse, verse 19. So here they are, they're in, they're in prison uh, and God doesn't waste any time, but, but at night, an angel of the Lord. Now this is interesting because Sadducees don't believe in angels. The Sadducees are the ones that throw them in prison. And then God sends an angel. He doesn't do it. I like that. The angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So like understand that, that God sends this angel and the angel has a message. And the message isn't like, guys, you got to be better at this. Like you got to just be a little more subtle. You got to figure out how to share the message of Jesus without attracting all this attention because you're just going to end up in prison again. That's not the message. The message is go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. (laughs) Go continue to do exactly what you're doing that landed you here in the first place. When they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. That simple obedience is wonderful. But look what happens in the end of verse 21. But the high priest and those with him came and they called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel. So at this point, this council is unaware of what's happening out in their temple. So they don't know that the prison's been opened because the prison was, it was shut after. They just, they just left. They don't know that it's early in the morning and they're, they're already back doing what they were arrested for and put in prison for the day before. So now they're meeting together to figure out what they're going to do with those two prisoners who are presumably still in prison. So they met together with all the elders of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought, right? Go bring, go bring the prisoners. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported saying, indeed, we have found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. <laughs> what, a, what a moment that would have been, right? To like, and, and you, gotta, you gotta almost feel for these messengers because it, they're, they're trying to make it sound not as bad as it is. So they come and be like, hey, just so you know, everything is pretty good. The, the prison is shut and the, the guards are there. One little issue, <laughs> prisoners aren't there anymore. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, they were trying not to get killed, right? That's, that's true. Verse 24, now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. I like that the first time they were so angry, and now it's almost like, oh man, like how is this possible? Mm-hmm. So one came and told them saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. (laughs) Then the captain went with the officers and brought them out without violence. So this, the first time they just grabbed them, they threw them in prison. This time they actually like, hey, can you come with us? Do you think you could? Yeah, okay. For they feared the people lest they should be stoned. 
So again, like this is such a difficult situation for these leaders because they're there and they're in charge of the temple. This is their territory. But now they've got all of their people that they're supposed to be leading, listening to these guys. They love them so much that if they were to take them, they know they'd rebel. And so they have to be like really nice this time. Absolutely. You, you like, how can they not see this? They're supposed to be the ones who are leading the people to God. God is smacking them in the face. And they, they're pretending like it's not, it's non-existent. Absolutely. Almost like Pharaoh, right? They're blind. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Yeah. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Listen to that. First of all, I love you filled Jerusalem with the doctrine. Everybody has now heard about the gospel. And not only that, you're blaming us for it? Like, yes, because you were the guys that hired Judas. You're the ones that arrested Jesus. You're the ones that tried him three times and then eventually brought him to Pontius Pilate. You're the ones that said, crucify him, crucify him. Like, this is your fault. But they're like shocked that somehow they would have the audacity to bring Jesus's blood on them. But Peter is just bold. He doesn't, he doesn't let that fly. Peter and the apostles answered and said, first, we ought to obey God rather than men. I told you that already. And that's what we're going to keep doing. Tertullian once said, truth does not blemish. I think that's, that's good. Truth does not blemish. If we know we have the truth, why are we, sorry, blush. Uh, why are we blushing? Why are we embarrassed? Why can't we be bold like Peter was bold? Because listen to his boldness in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him. God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Like how, how much clearer can he be? You did kill him. God has exalted him to be the prince and the savior so that people in Israel can repent and be forgiven. He's sharing the gospel, right? This is, this is for sinners like you. And we saw it happen. We are eyewitnesses of all of these things, but it's not just our word. It's not just being confirmed by our testimony. It's being confirmed by the Holy Spirit of God. How are you going to fight against that? What? How could they continue to fight? They did. Because look what happens in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. So I think in verse 33, we're supposed to like feel the weight of what could happen at this moment, right? There are, there are 12 apostles, 11 apostles, Matthias is there, presumably. But So we'll say 12 apostles there. 
They're all there together. They're all let out of prison. They're all preaching. Now they're all standing before this council. They've just said something that is so infuriating that they're like, that's it. We have to kill them. It doesn't matter what the crowd thinks. It, like the only solution to this problem is to kill them. And, and if they kill them, what happens to the church? What happens to Christianity? I mean, it, it's hard to imagine it working out like Jesus has planned. I, I know God is sovereign. I know that, that if, this, if, if they did die, then he'd figure it out. Like he, he would have had that as part of his plan. I know that. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, humanly speaking, this looks like it could be the end. And then verse 34. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a while. So we're at this stage where everybody is ready to kill them. And then one guy who's a part of the Sanhedrin, he's a respected teacher in Israel, but one guy stands up and says, hold on guys, just a second. Before you slit their throats, let's talk for a minute. Put, the, put them outside and we will have a conversation. And this is what he says. Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew many people away after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. This is a, this is a Jewish leader, who, Paul's teacher, absolutely, who is, I mean, you know how zealous Paul was. You know what his attitude toward the church was. And here's the man who is responsible for teaching him. And yet he has the wisdom to stand up and say, guys, there's a lot of, there's a lot of movements in the past. There's a lot of people who have risen up and they, they at, at a time gained a lot of followers. But what happened? They died. Their followers scattered. I don't know if Gamaliel's thinking about Jesus here. Because if he is, man, I don't know how he doesn't get it. If he's thinking about Jesus and he says, Jesus had followers, he died. Why haven't they scattered? How is this thing still going? How is it still growing? Because if they would, if, if, if his thing is right, then if he's not thinking about Jesus, if he's thinking about the apostles, wouldn't it be smart just to kill him and see if everybody scatters? I think he understands that there's something happening here. And he's trying to tell these, these men, like, we, we need to take a breath and say, if this is a man, it will die. It will. But if it's of God, nothing can overthrow it. Okay, now hear that, because that's important, because we're facing opposition, and, and there's Christians facing opposition all over the world. If it's of God, nothing can overthrow it. Because people begin to fight against God. And I thought about that. I thought, how amazing to live a life 
where when people fight against you, it's as though they're fighting against God. The only way to attack you is, is to attack the work of God directly because you're involved in that work, right? Uh, like, why do we not, why doesn't this, this thrill us to say like, I could be on, I could be fighting in a way where if somebody is against me, they're directly against God and God will fight for me. And because it's, it's, I'm in a, a fight, I'm in a battle where I can't lose. You do, you have to be in the will of God to be able to say that. It is not just like, a, well, I, I got saved once and so clearly I'm, no, that's not it. Look what these men were doing. They were doing exactly what they were commanded to do. They were back in the temple and they were back preaching the gospel. Uh, let's, let's finish up. We uh, Hold on. Yeah, we'll just finish the last three verses. Verse 40. They agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and they had beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they agree with him. If this is, if this is God's work, then we can't fight against it, right? We can't overthrow it. We're still going to beat them because that'll feel good, right? And so they, they command them to not speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It, it, that is such a, a paradox, like almost an oxymoron, where you, they're rejoicing that they can be shamed. You don't, you don't rejoice when you're embarrassed. You don't rejoice when somebody shames you. And yet they're rejoicing that they can suffer shame for his name because they recognize that they are entering into the sufferings of Christ. And that that's actually part of what the Christian is supposed to do. Right? Christ suffered. And now he's called us to follow him, to pick up our cross, right? And when we do that properly in our lives, there will be times where we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. It was, absolutely. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. All the, the blessed are those who, but it, it was also in Philippians when Paul is saying, uh, like, I, I just want to know the power of Christ, the power of the resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. These things, the power of God and suffering for Christ, they do go hand in hand, right? It, it's an all-in kind of thing. And so the church was growing. The church was doing wonderful things. It was, it was an exciting time to be a Christian. It wasn't safe. It was a little scary. And they certainly had to trust God quite a bit to do it. And so what do we learn from from the lesson today? What's, what's the new thing that we can add? I thought about that for a while and I thought, I think most of what's happening here, we've already addressed, right? Most of the things that the church, church is doing in this lesson, it's our, the foundation of that has already been laid in Acts. So here we have spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus fulfilling the great commission. Powered by the spirit, they're going out with the, the commission they've been given and they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. We have gospel proclamation that's focusing on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and inviting sinners to repent and believe. It's what, what's already happening. It's already been happening and now it continues to happen. We have gospel proclamation that's being made by obedient believers possessed with boldness derived from time spent with Jesus. Cer certainly these men had spent a lot of time with Jesus. 
Their boldness was not because they were smart. And if you were to compare this council and the amount of education, the amount of study that had taken place there to the fishermen, tax collector bunch of apostles, it's not a competition. That's ridiculous. And yet they have this incredible boldness to stand before these men and, and call them the murderers of Jesus and say that this was God's plan all along. Finally, we see that believers rejoiced in suffering for Jesus and were not deterred by opposition to the gospel. And the the great thing is when we decide to get in the will of God, to do what God wants us to do, there's a freedom in that because you're no longer worried about what the consequences. So if, if you are trying to sort out your life by yourself, as soon as something goes wrong, who is it on? It's on you, right? You made a bad decision. You you made a bad bet, right? That was a bad risk to take. When you start to live your life and you, 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 at work, wherever you are, and you're saying, I'm going to just do what God wants me to do. Then when things go poorly, then you get to say, I guess I get to suffer for Jesus. I guess that's God's plan for my life right now. And that's okay. That's fine, right? There's so much that can be learned in that time. Now, again, not advocating that you just go out and be a jerk so you can suffer. That, that's not suffering for Jesus. But I am saying that when we're in the will of God, it is actually a really safe place to be, okay? Not because every, like, <laughs> all 12 apostles except for John were killed for their faith. This was a God who could deliver them at any time. He proved that in this text. And at, at some point in their life, he said, and now it's your time to be killed, right? And so that can happen. But what? They, they die and they go to heaven forever. That's it's okay. All right. All right. We're going to conclude with that. Um. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.